Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. What should non-Asians know about being Asian? In the, uh, or simply put, how could they not... How, you know, something like me, how can I not be a dick? Or is there something, and I've never asked you this before, but is there something that you wish folks of other races or maybe just white people knew about being Asian that isn't talked about or you've never said or others haven't said? I think that the, the main thing that most Asian Americans would want would just to be regarded as three-dimensional human beings with uh, thoughts, feelings, hopes, ambitions, a uh, sense of humor, et cetera, et cetera, and not to be reduced to any trade, including race. I think that's what most people want. Yeah. And I, my favorite quote from you on the presidential, when someone had said, well, you are repurposing and promoting a stereotype when you use a math slogan or things like that. And you said, maybe, but you know, it's also not the Asian American stereotype is standing next to Joe Biden and running for president, right? Yeah, like the, the entire thing is like you're reinforcing Asian stereotypes. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I'm running for president. It's like the least Asian thing you can do. <laughs> so shut the fuck up is what I'd wanted to say. But of course, you know, you can't say that stuff when you're running for office. You have to be like, oh, I understand. People can take a joke. But internally, I was like, like, look a fucking round you. It's like, what am I doing here? You know? This week on Forward, I follow up my interview with Jay Caspian Kang about Asian American identity and politics. What is going on with that CNN piece about Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke running for governor? Where are American leaders? What is going on with the bench? And much, much more this week. Hey, everyone. It's great to be back with you. I had a blast this week on the podcast with Jay Caspian Kang, author of The Loneliest Americans, which is now here on on the bookshelf. If you haven't listened to that convo, do check it out. Uh, I found it edifying, a little bit cathartic. (laughs) Hmm. It was fun talking to someone who was making a bunch of arguments about the Asian American community that I thought were very courageous, very original, very honest, and it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. You've been asked to talk about your identity more often than you've always wanted to. I feel like the people forcing you to make the, your races about your identity when you were trying to run on issues. Yeah, it, it's certainly part of the media today. And it, it was fascinating, the treatment of the presidential campaign, where you remember when I was like the last candidate 
who wasn't white on the debate stage mm -hmm. in California in the sixth debate, I think. And one of the jokes I told internally was like, well, we're about to find out if Asians are white. <laughs> because in, in terms of whether uh, the media would make a thing out of it. Uh, and this is after Kamala dropped out. We're going to talk about Kamala a little later. This is after Corey had dropped out. This mm -hmm. is after a lot of people had dropped out. So certainly the, the media, I will say, has like a selective treatment of race where like the, they'll be obsessed about it if it reinforces certain narratives that they're really into augmenting. And then they'll completely mute it <laughs> if, if it if it fits into a narrative they don't like. Uh, and mm -hmm. I will say that my presidential campaign seemed to fall into the latter category mm -hmm. because Asian Americans in politics is not a super mainstream topic. Uh, and I, I want to go into a few of the facts around it because I think it'll be interesting to at least some people. So maybe surprising to, to folks or maybe completely unsurprising, but Asian Americans are the most underrepresented community in the country in terms of electoral politics. Mm -hmm. We're about 6% of the population, let's say, and that doesn't show up in terms of elected representatives. And there are a number of structural reasons for that. One, we don't run for office as often. We don't vote as often. We don't donate as often. So that's clearly just, you know, facts and you know that's something that I'd number. like to change. I mean, if there's a community that's not as politically engaged, though I share all the time that when I grew up, my parents did not talk about politics at all. And I have a feeling a lot of Asian American households are the same. And so I, I think that there is a lot of uh, conditioning mm -hmm. that one needs to try to uh, make a break from. Um, but there are structural reasons uh, around why we're not as uh, often represented. Another is that we tend to be in very blue or red areas um, where we're not really that important a population um, mm -hmm. uh, in, in a lot of contexts. And I had a joke all the time, which is if we all move to New Hampshire <laughs> or, or someplace <laughs> that's really like politically you know, in, in, important. Yeah. Um, but if we're wedged into larger populations in uh, New York or Texas or California. I will also say that California is maybe the biggest uh, uh, different type of environment mm -hmm. where you do have Asian American elected officials, mayors, et cetera. Now there's a mayor in Boston for the first time. Um, so congratulations to uh, Michelle Wu. So, but by and large, that there is like a pattern around Asian American political engagement and representation that's kind of low. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was growing up, one an, another reason for this was that Asian Americans were kind of split along party lines. There was a slight Democratic lean, but it was something like 55-45. There were a lot of Asian American Republicans because they're small business owners. They voted on one issue, which was taxes. Mm -hmm. And that has changed recently somewhat, in part because of Trump and the China virus and all of that. Like the Republicans have taken on this sort of nativist feeling that uh, that Asian Americans sense uh, may not include them. Mm. Um, Though I'd also suggest that the predominant Democratic Party narrative of elevating oppressed people of color also doesn't really include Asian Americans. We've seen that in different ways. So to the point of Jay's book, I think Asian Americans are somewhat politically homeless, truly. And I think the Democratic Party is presenting a case that, look, you have no choice but to vote for us because look at the other side. I mean, you have Trump. Uh, literally stoking xenophobia and the rest of it. And over the last number of years, there has been a real movement in that direction where Asian Americans now vote Democratic 
something like 60-40 or 65-35. Okay. It was almost two to one Democratic in Georgia, for example. Yep. Uh, and so there, there is this sense that uh, Asian Americans are trending Democratic. Um, at the same time, though, I, I do think that the Democratic Party has not really emphasized the Asian American community. And the Asian American community officials I've talked to silently echo that uh, in, in different ways. Uh, and I think there's also a dynamic where Democrats are like, well, you don't have a choice but to vote for us because you're not white and look at the other side. Um, mm. But when it comes to actually emphasizing issues that affect Asian Americans, like at least I'll say for myself, like I don't really see it coming from uh, either side, but uh, the Democratic Party, I think, lay, makes a stronger claim and then doesn't necessarily follow through. Couple questions for you on this. Um, what you're talking about is both parties in some ways inability to drum up the fight, drum up the support collectively amongst the Asian population. Um, and there's a number of reasons. My question to you is, do you think the pitch to an Asian American in the United States of America to get involved in politics is very high? Um, like what's the ROI to get into the fight for the Asian community? And what I mean is like, is it because representation is some is, is an argument that's made in, in various communities and that doesn't always solve the problem. I think um, it's not like a, a money-making path. Like a lot of Asian Americans I find are doing their thing and don't tend to care. They're apolitical or don't care about politics. And I don't know what, what are your thoughts on the ROI or the actual pitch for either party to get them involved? Well, first, let me say also that Jay's argument in his book is that Asian American identity is not really a thing. <laughs> that, that, I didn't that, read the that, book. That, you did. Um, and that it, it's, so, um, so it's an academic construction. Uh, it was created at Berkeley in the aftermath of the civil rights movement of the 60s. I went to college and joined a college student organization that had Asian American in the name. So I, I'm of the population that Jay's describing that gets socialized into this Asian American identity. Okay. But the majority of immigrant communities who come here uh, aren't socialized in that way. Uh, he uses his parents as an example. So the, the first issue is that the Asian American community may not be a thing. <laughs> I don't identify. What do you, like, when you say that, like, help me understand, like, coming out outside of that community, like, when you say not a thing, you mean they, they, like, they're not identifying as Asian in that sense, that shared community of Asian-ness in your way, or? That's part of it, yes. Okay. So one part of it is that they'd be more likely to identify with their nation of origin. Okay. So they'd be more likely to identify as Laotian, Mm -hmm. or, or Korean um, well before they would consider themselves Asian American. That's Interesting. For sure. Okay. So, so that's number one is there's a nationalistic identity. The second thing is that the community is the most diverse of any community in terms of both education level and socioeconomic background. Mm -hmm. um, the point you're making is what is the rational thing? And a lot of immigrant communities who show up here don't give a shit about politics because yeah. they're just like, I'm just here to try and make a decent life for my family. Mm -hmm. uh, politics is kind of a luxury sport. You know what I mean? Like, like you, you get to, you have to have a certain degree of confidence <laughs> or, yeah. or time or bandwidth um, in, in order to get engaged. And my parents did not give a shit about politics because they were just here just grinding, trying to make a living. Um, and that, that goes double or triple for newer communities who come here and may not have uh, educational opportunities, may not have language. Uh, yeah. and, and so they get here, they have kids, uh, and they're like, hey, figure it out. But 
uh, it's not like um, like they're they're not super concerned or stressed about politics. And then if you go and try and activate them, which but by the way, I think is a worthy endeavor. I mean, I'm for right. it. Um, so so there are, there are a number of things that make this Asian American identity somewhat elusive. I think Jay's point is that it's kind of a, an an invented media fiction, um, in part because they want a, a language or term to be able to talk about this community in, which makes sense. Uh, and the quote from his book that I loved so much is like, we know we don't have it as bad as you, which is uh, referring to black people, but we're not white and we need a way to talk about it. Um, and so there's this group of educated, college educated Asian Americans who've been using this term as a political media construction. One of Jay's arguments is that the people who are quote unquote professional Asian Americans don't actually speak for these immigrant communities in large mm-hmm. part because they have not much in common with them. So there's something of, of this fractious community, a lot of which is totally disengaged. Uh, you know, I, I would contrast it with someone like Ai-jen Poo, who's uh, an Asian American labor activist who definitely is working in immigrant communities. I mean, like right. the, the, like she and, and she's working with uh, domestics who are uh, Latino and like different backgrounds. So like that that form of activist does exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jay's point is that when you talk about politics or media, then there's like only a certain layer of uh, Asian Americans who will care a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Maybe those who are brought up here and are hev- more heavily invested in a sense of uh, feeling like we're full-fledged Americans. Right. Uh, and this is something, you know, I certainly, and I have a lot in common with Jay in terms of our backgrounds. Uh, so I, I, I get them both. It's like I, I get, there are a number of points here. One is that Asian American is, uh, it may not be and one of the things I talked about all the time when the media asked me about this is be like, hey, what do you think about your, you know, math jokes or blah, blah, blah. What it says about the Asian American community. I'm just like, look, I would never even pretend to speak for an entire giant community of millions of people that I know, <laughs> you know, like runs the gamut. So, right. you know, but but at the same time, there's like this sense that I, I know I'm one of the more visible uh, public figures in the Asian American community. And so, like, there is a certain, you know, level of um, – responsibility not to you know be terrible (laughs) i suppose which by the way you know i obviously think that you know people understand uh jokes and humor like me relating my personal experience and not pretending it speaks for everybody um so the the calculation around trying to get asian americans more politically engaged to me is like look we have to try and become more a part of uh, american politics because it's going to affect us the the problem right now is that and this is Jay's argument as well as that race in America is very much a black white construction. Mm-hmm. And you can see this again with, and I'm just going to project out with like Latinos, like which is a similar dynamic where Latino, I mean, shit. And it's like very diverse. A lot of people just trying to make uh, things happen for themselves and their families. And you stick a mic in their face and be like, what do you think about <laughs> you, know, uh-huh. you know, this and that? They'll be like, oh, you know, uh, and it, it's something that um, I saw play out in the presidential trail for sure. I, I think that those two uh, immigrant communities have some commonalities or, you know, common, frankly, some common uh, issues around political engagement. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free. Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix 
And you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. You just did a show in New York last Saturday, which was great, sold out, which is fun. Um, you talked about on the show, and I've heard you talk about it before, your invisibility cloak as an Asian man, um, where like if I wanted to be anonymous or hidden, you felt that you could do it. Oh yeah, just uh, uh, don't uh, stick your face into someone else's face, and you you know you could just, just walk by. <laughs> do you? I'm curious at how that or one you get uh, one love you to like unpack that further, but also it's tied to or can it be? Is it tied to this concept of otherness that I feel like the Asian American community lives with um, where you're not and you got it some a bit. I think we ran for mayor. We are not really a New Yorker, even though you've been here for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, and anything you did that wasn't. I don't know, like traditional New Yorker. You said your favorite subway station was Times Square, which is, by the way, where you live. And if you listen to that full quote, you're like, yeah, it's my favorite one because it's the one I take all the time. Um, like, oh, he's a tourist. You had political cartoons that were, in my opinion, offensive and um, little backlash from those who usually call out those sort of things as offensive. Um, like, the, does that invisibility cloak you're talking about play into the other, otherness of the Asian American community, am I overthinking that? I don't know what you think. Well, one of the things that Jay and I talked about, which I found hysterical, uh, where he said uh, on the podcast, he was like, people just don't give a shit about the internal lives of Asian Americans, <laughs> which I laughed at because I thought, well, it's pretty true. And then he talked about the tension of writing a book around something that people don't give a shit about. Right. Uh, so uh, I think that's the way that um, you adapt uh, over time. Uh, and I would say that people there's like a spectrum of racism where it's like you know that anti-black racism is much more serious and destructive uh and so then if you complain about racism towards like another group then everyone's like yeah you know and, and that, that, that's part yeah. of jay, yeah it's part of jay's point mm -hmm. um and, and so certainly that otherness and let, let me say that uh, I feel very American. Uh, I got into some trouble because, uh, you know, I wrote something that frankly assumed Asian Americans were Americans. <laughs> no, <laughs> and I got into trouble with, 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 you know, with people who, um, who, who somehow imagined that I was calling our Americanness into question when I was really assuming it. Yeah. Uh, I love this country. I mean, my parents immigrated here. And I think, um, you know, at the same time, like I, I don't have any illusions about the fact that, um, that people perceive who I am, at least partially, as an Asian guy, and you know there are certain um, things that come with that. And uh, you know, as like a, an adult, you know, like there are some things that I, I took for granted, including this invisibility cloak I was right. joking about. But it turns out that I was completely wrong about the invisibility cloak because now, when I walk the streets of New York or any place else, people are like, "Yang, you're no you know? longer invisible." Yeah, where's my thousand bucks? And I'm like, "Oh, you know, and like, uh, <laughs> like, oh, that's that's different." But I, I'd say it's positive, different. 
and I'm trying to make the most of this. I do want to activate Asian Americans uh, that are uh, right now disengaged in some of these issues. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that my campaign did that. Like I, I met a lot of people from different communities uh, who said, uh, look, you know, you may be interested in, in politics, in politics, you made me care. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I, mm. I think that assuming that degree of involvement uh, is like a sign of confidence and maturation, um, which I love. Uh, though I, I will also say that if someone decides that politics is just anxiety producing and depressing and they want to ignore it for uh, an extended period of time, I'm with you there too. It's like, you know, <laughs> like, don't worry about <laughs> it. You know, it's <laughs> like you, you, yeah. Because of a lot of the things, you know, like, frankly, the media drumbeat, um, which uh, we're going we're to talk about uh, the recent article about Kamala. But like the, the media uh, is definitely race obsessed in a way that I certainly think most Asian Americans are not. Yeah. Like most Asian Americans, in my experience, are just trying to make good things happen for themselves and their family. Uh, and yeah, like that. And if, if there are media products that they want to consume that have a lot of Asian faces, there, there are a lot of those products that are being made in people's native countries. You know, yeah. like a lot of the Koreans I know just watch Korean dramas and <laughs> like perfectly happy. That said, also, uh, I am of that group of people that loves it when uh, creators and artists of um, different communities like are, are trying to make that happen, in part because it's so hard. So, like, I, I do support Asian American. Uh, writers and artists and the and the rest of it because I feel the the resistance. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good that's a good segue to this last question I asked you. So I think it's not I don't I think by that we've looked at some numbers so we could pull them up if we want to dive in further. But I, I, your your point that it, most Asian Americans you think are not race obsessed. I think most Americans are not race obsessed. And I know that people have told me that's a, a uh, or, or, you know, the classic white guy saying, I don't see racism is a, is a place of privilege. And, and, and I agree with that. But I also you could also be true to the other extent that not it's still not everybody thinking racism all the time or seeing race and only race. But my my question is, you know, at, at least from my own personal experience as a, as a straight white guy. My, my whole thing is I'm trying to be an ally, trying not to be an asshole like on most days. Um, and my question is, what? <laughs> What should non-Asians know about being Asian in the, uh, or simply put, how could they not, how, you know, someone like me, how can I not be a dick? Or is there something, and I've never asked you this before, but is there something that you wish folks of other races or maybe just white people knew about being Asian that isn't talked about or you've never said or others haven't said? Well, you and I have worked together for years, so clearly. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I've got a lot of this through osmosis, I think, and I've lived the community many ways. Oh, I... You know, I think that the the main thing that most Asian Americans would want would just to be regarded as three dimensional human beings with uh, thoughts, feelings, hopes, ambitions, uh, sense of humor, et cetera, et cetera, and not to be reduced to any trade, including race. I think that's what most people want. Yeah, and I my favorite quote from you on the presidential when someone had said, "Well, you are." repurposing and promoting a stereotype when you use a math slogan or things like that. And you said, maybe, but you know, it's also not the Asian American stereotype is standing next to Joe Biden on and the running for president. Right. Yeah. Like the, the entire thing is like, you're reinforcing Asian stereotypes. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I'm running for president. It's like the least Asian thing you can do. <laughs> so shut the fuck up is what I'd wanted to say. But of course, you know, you can't say that stuff when you're running for office. You have to be like, Oh, I understand people can take a joke. But internally I was like, like, look, 
a fucking round you. It's like, what am I doing here? You know? (laughs) And and I will say too that like, this is one of the things that irritated the shit out of me. It's like you find like seven irritating but, you know, Asian Americans with like organizations that barely exist and be like, oh, look, we found these Asian Americans to say like Andrew Yang doesn't speak for us. It's like one, I would never pretend to speak for everyone in the community. But two, it's like do something. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, but then the fact that the media like would like to like to beat that. You know why? Because it serves the media's narrative. And you know who it doesn't serve? Like everyone else, <laughs> like the American public, all of us, you know, a, a, like people who want good things to happen, Asian American, like that shit does not help. But, you know, like that there is like this. Yeah, it's like a device, uh, you know, it, and it's something it's happening to Jay, too, by the way. And so, you know, like at the end of my conversation with Jay, we, we had a moment about that. Yeah, so I'll I'll drop that. I love. Well, it's it's we, we live this world where a lot of the people are pretending to or claiming to be championing progress are usually the blockade uh, to that well, progress. Well, they, they have just a very, very narrow definition and, and it's around social media bullshit and things that don't matter to the vast majority of people. Um, yeah. And so then, you know, you just like get caught up in that and then like that, like that's the coin of the realm. I, it's one of the diseases of this time. Oh, it's what we live every day, brother. That's why I mean, look, and we appreciate all of you for listening. Cause it's one of, it's a place where you can actually have a conversation on this. That isn't, it, it's gray. It's not black or white. Most things are, um, Maybe that could be white. Jay's book uh, title instead of The Loneliest Americans. Not black or white. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. (laughs) That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. All right, let's talk about Kamala Harris because... I'm going to summarize this and I want to get your thoughts. So Kamala Harris, who I would say behind the scenes is a friend. I always like to interact with her. You and her are really friendly on the trail. Like friend yes. is probably too much of a stretch and that you're not spending a ton well, of time. Well, it's politics, with but yeah. Kamala and I uh, get along Similar well, age, right? spend some time. Um, yeah, like, spend, uh, you know, in presidential candidates, uh, we wind up spending time with each other on the yeah. trail. Like I spoke directly before or after Kamala at least half a dozen, maybe a dozen times. Uh, you know, we'd like hang out in the airport for half an hour sometimes like you know things like that would happen on the trail yeah 
who and then a lot of these things like especially the way our two-party system works like who they are as a person and how they publicly personify themselves it, it, they can be different like we always like to hang out with, with Kamala and her team in, in the debates and at the airport and things like that so CNN um, comes out with a piece exasperation and dysfunction inside Kamala Harris's frustrating start as vice president and at CNN it's our friend a friend of the show Isaac Edward Isaac Dover um, we like uh, I think he's a pretty good journalist um, and Basically, I mean, your thought about this quick summary is that uh, the belief is that she's been si- she's being sidelined and constrained within the Biden administration. And the direct co- quote is that Harris's staff has repeatedly failed her and left her exposed. And family members have often had informal say within her office. Even some who have been asked for advice lament Harris's overly cautious tendencies and staff problems, which have been a feature of every office she's ever held from San Francisco district attorney to U.S. Senate. That's kind of the opening paragraph. Um, and it goes on with a lot of crap about the Kamala Harris experience in the White House right now. So, Andrew, I love your general thoughts on this. As someone who's had like process stories come out on you, I would like, I think what we can offer here is like how to sort through the grains of truth in here and the media hype around it and general political bullshit. So, general thoughts, and then we can dive in specifically. So my reaction was, holy cow, someone has it in for Kamala. <laughs> 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 what, what, what was the reaction? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, a story that gets generated when a few people want this story out there in the world. Um, and so it makes you think, who wants the story out in the world? Yeah. Uh, now, are there some elements of truth? Almost certainly, yes. Could you write the story about you know a whole range of political figures? Because uh, you know there, there's going to be some... Uh, dysfunction or adjustment or whatever, also, yes. But Kamala Mm -hmm. has been subject to a number of these types of stories. This might be the most prominent because it's on CNN, which generally is very, very... You don't see a lot of this type of like... When they do investigative stuff, they usually take a long time to do it, and it's like a moral ordeal. You know what I'm saying? Agree. Um, So this seemed very, very significant because it was CNN, and CNN is as mainstream as you get. Uh, and generally very, very buttoned up and responsible. Uh, Isaac is very buttoned up and responsible. Correct. This thing is well-sourced. Um, so uh, a number of things that I think are going on, big picture. Uh, the Democrats right now are definitely trying to figure out what the line of succession looks like, which is not necessarily what you want, given that right now Joe's kind of challenged. Mm-hmm. Um, so Joe's got a 43% approval rating last I checked. Um, they're looking for that Frank to make, just make went a, down, a comeback. Poor guy. Um, Poor guy, I don't and, know, whatever and, that means. <laughs> and so after Joe, the next person up is logically Kamala. The issue is that Kamala polls five points worse than Joe. I think that this particular story had her approval rating at 28% or something very low. Um, and so then the Democrats find themselves in a bit of a bind, which is like, okay, if Joe doesn't run, and Joe will be 81, 82 by the time 2024 rolls around. Mm-hmm. Now, Kamala was picked... And this is the the tough thing is that when Joe picked Kamala, he essentially did anoint her the future of the Democratic Party and the next president. Yes. And, and we we all could see that very clearly. I mean, Joe's kind of on the older side. Joe said he was going to be a bridge. So by appointing Kamala, he said she is going to be the next president of the United States. There's one thing that's always inherent in the VP pick that sometimes they miss. where They pick a name that's going to help them win or unite the party. But it also means showing the world this person is going to be considered the future of the party, whether or not that's true or not. Um, anyway. Well, th- there have been different picks that have served different functions at different times. So 
Like Dan Quayle back in the day, George Bush. No one thought that dude was going to be president. Dick Cheney with George uh, W. No Bush. one thought he was going to be president. No one thought he was going to be president. But everybody thought he'd be running the show. Even Joe Biden under uh, under Barack Obama, Obama chose him in part because he would, quote unquote, be too old to have his own political ambitions yep. after and Obama left office. And he checked the experience office. box. Yes, there was and a round out the experience box. Yes. So it's not always the case that the next person up is going to be the next president of the heir apparent. But on this one, it was clear that Kamala was being positioned as the uh, the next one up in the heir apparent. Right. And I'm going to say something that I've never said to you privately or publicly. Okay. But when Joe chose Kamala, I had a bit of a sinking feeling because I was like, oh, gosh, we're going to position Kamala to be the next president. And Kamala, even then, reminded me forcibly of Hillary Clinton, where she was a popular blue state senator in California. But California is a very big state. It's not that much retail. It was essentially like a TV type. TV candidate. Raise the money, you usually win. Yes. TV candidate, uh, uh, raise the money, Kamala wins. Uh, One of the reasons why Kamala got out when she did in the presidential was it was before California voted. And uh, I'm genuinely not sure what her support level or popularity is in California. Uh, she ran a presidential campaign like Hillary that underperformed. I mean, Hillary came very, very close to winning, whereas Kamala did not. And mm-hmm. so you look at it and you're like, okay, what has this person done to warrant them being the next president of the United States? And you would have to say that it was in large part because Joe said very publicly, I'm going to have a woman vice president, no. which is not a terrible sentiment. I, I think I said something similar. Um, but then after he announced that, he said – uh, he he had a lot of pressure to name a woman of color. So then it quickly got constrained to a few choices. It was Kamala, uh, Susan Rice, or Karen Bass were like the three most prominent mm-hmm. women of color that seemed like realistic choices. Mm-hmm. And then Kamala had been vetted of those three. And when you're running for president, the key is just to try and win. And so Kamala seemed like the safest pick of the three of them. But even then, when this was happening, I was like, oh no, this is gonna be Hillary Clinton redux when or if uh, Kamala becomes the nominee, um, which is what a lot of people are facing right now. They're looking at it and saying, Kamala is clearly the next person up. Kamala is clearly not connecting with people. She's not that, that popular. And so there is an agenda from some people within the uh, the, the Democratic administration, either because they want to boost another candidate or because they, they want to blame some of the failings uh, on Kamala, um, uh, or maybe they just simply don't like her as a candidate and are trying to find ways to, to get her out. Uh, but there, there is definitely something going on where people are trying to undermine and shiv her. Uh, and that there is a significant part of me that understands it because I'm like, look, if you just go in with Kamala as your nominee, it's not like a winning rationale or a winning candidacy. Right. I mean, like it, it, and the way Democrats right now are going to look at this is that every cycle is existential. Uh, and, and so, you you know, so you, you can't afford just to be like, yeah, we're going to run this person because, you know, she's a V. She's up next. And she's yeah. up next and she's a woman of color. And, you know, there are elements of the party that would really, really love that. Um, so I, I did think all of this uh, back in, in 2020 when this was happening. I was like, wow, if... if that this ticket wins, then there's going to be a Hillary slash Kamala problem um, the next cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some ways, it would have been better to bring in someone who didn't have that kind of profile or independent political ambition, in my opinion. But uh, on the other hand, can't fault Joe because it was the safest pick to win and he won. Yep. Um, in hindsight, the right decision at the time, right? Um, but now we're 
Well, the other piece of this too is that is that some people, some commentators have said something which I don't think is wrong. They were like, like shocker, their teams aren't meshing. Um, and one of the things that did happen is that Kamala's team um, kind of came apart during the presidential. And then when they installed her as vice president, they installed new people around her. So yeah. unlike most folks who reach that level where you have the, a bunch of hardened operatives who've been people with you, you trust, th- yeah. thick and thin, who care about it. Like it, it'd be like if, if I was, let's say I was vice president right now, you know, there'd be Zach, there'd be a handful of other people that uh, that we'd been through some wars together. So at least we have that dynamic. In Kamala's case, uh, like it's a different group of people. Yeah. Uh, it's like professionals, some people are connected to Biden world. And so she doesn't have this core uh, group. And to the extent they're bringing in new people, they're people that she has to establish trust and chemistry with. By the way, when you're in a position where it's very, very hard to develop trust it because, so because you would look around and think like, hey, this person has their own agenda, which just, but all of them do. Yep. Like all the people around Kamala have an agenda independent of Kamala. Yep. We live this because you have to hire these people on the fly. And there's only a certain amount of people you trust in there, but they, those people you trust don't always have the experience and the job is changing, right? Like you may have someone you worked with for 30 years, but now you've got an immigration challenge. You've been tasked to do like the border wall X, Y, Z. You don't know anybody you trust as an expert on the border, right? You have to find them. And that is very, very hard. So I did, there's a part in the article where they talk about her leaning on her, I think brother-in-law and uh, sister and other others in the family, but to me, I think that's BS. I think that if, if you're in her role, there's only a few people you can actually trust who are on Team Kamala no matter what. And you have to at least, like, you always give them an ear, if you will. Um, and they can there can be a downfall to that. There's downsides to that. But um, there's less downside with someone who's an independent thinker, frankly, which she, given her political career, doesn't always have the opportunity to be at times. That was not my point. Here's my thought. I've said this to you guys when you read an article, when you hear numbers that are a little vague, you need to call red flag. So this was the direct quote from the article it said nearly three dozen they interviewed nearly three dozen former and current harris aides administration officials democratic operatives donors and outside advisors who spoke extensively to cnn so yes three dozen is a a closer that's not numerous or multiple which i always flag but i don't know is that one or two staffers and a whole bunch of donors and outside like there's the waiting there seems off to me um i mean she has a gajillion donors yeah that could be that could be a whole bunch of things um, so that's, what's interesting to your point. Like when you said someone has it out for, her or someone's trying to shiver, like that makes sense. And if you say, yeah, we did 36 interviews, but we don't know how many in- internal aides are talking and how many people actually know what they're talking about are talking. Not really. And none of them are publicly on record. The people that are public on record, generally speaking, are very removed from the white house and talking positive. There's a couple people negative, but all of them, the, the people on record in this piece are talking from outside of the White House. So you got the Lieutenant Governor of California, you have some Democratic operatives around the country. Uh, so I, to me, it's like, you know, is it that, that much a disaster in there? I think it comes down to your point, like the core of the political dynamics here. Like she was picked as the future of the party when she didn't have necessarily the populist or popular support that would kind of anoint that, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. So that, that, so. There is a passage in the article where they say maybe they'll appoint her to the Supreme Court to like, you know, give her a place to go. It's a very House of Cards move. So there is this really (laughs) uh, persistent strain where people are looking up saying, well, we have to do something. Um, And another part of this article is saying that she's not going to scare off the field. Um, But then when they talk about the field, it's all people who I ran with in 2020. Buttigieg. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say something that, you know, I don't think it's going to shock people. It's like, I don't think the answer comes from um, like some of the also rands in the 2020 Democratic field. You know, I, I it's uh, it's tough to see, uh, you know, like that there is like they we all had issues and drawbacks, certainly electorally and politically, in in my opinion. It's one reason why in an earlier email I suggested, you know, you need someone new on that side. Uh, I I believe that still. It's like uh, that. It's one of the problems. This is going to be hard because for the Democrats to win, and and I mean win like they have to run the right candidate, and then that candidate has to be appealing. That candidate has to get through the Demo- be able to play the Democrat. I'm a Democrat team Dem card, and they have to appeal to, frankly, anti-establishment voters in the middle, right where they're like called independents, moderate right, moderate left. Um, it's probably a number of the voters that decided the election in the state of Virginia, right? That, that type of voter. That's hard. Um, uh, Buttigieg, like maybe uh, he has um, a lot of trouble in the, in the states um, where the there's a large voter of of women and, and people of color, particularly the black vote. Um, like South Carolina was not great for Pete. Um, that'll be hard for him. Other than that, man, I don't know. Like. Tulsi Gabbard theoretically would do well, but I, you know, there's are you the kidding? Democratic, are you talking about Democrats? <laughs> you know, the Democrats would never let her go in. You know, like, I'm thinking about like people that yeah, could actually yeah. maybe do it. Um, and the Dems would never let Tulsi in. Um, you're out. So of the Democrat part, I, I don't know who they got. I really don't. We got to think about it. Right now, the most likely candidates are Joe and Kamala. Um, it's going to be one of those two. And Joe is saying publicly and privately that he's going to run again. When I talk to folks in you know or, in ordinary day to day conversation, people are like people groan a bit because you know we can tell he's getting on in years. I mean, he he will be yeah. eighty one, eighty two by the time the next election rolls around. Uh, I I'll say someone said to me privately. Uh, I mean, I won't you know out this person, but someone was around someone who attended the uh, G20 yeah. conference recently who was, yeah. who was around Joe. Those photos were so awkward. Well, but then, then they, 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 but then that, this person was very negative about Joe running again in part because of like whatever vibe he gave off. Oh, boy. Um, there were, I don't know if there's truth to these, but a lot of conservative outlets were said he farted in front of a leader. Breaking wind was the... Well, that, that one certainly doesn't upset <laughs> I me. I mean, that, that, that People happens, farts, you know. Uh, I think it's funny. Um the do I, bet, th- I mean I bet Trump fucking farted in you front sh- of people I'm sure all the time. he farted. Uh, I, mean, that, that, I don't I don't, I don't you do is you, like, you, you look at Donald Trump, that dude farts. That dude farts. Trump plus yes. he eats McDonald's all the live long day or whatever. Dude, that's intestinal's gotta be a wreck. Digestive tract gotta be absolutely yeah, charred he's, over. He's like a big dude. Yeah, fast food all the time. I don't judge people for that. You know, plus, plus he also doesn't seem like the type who would be restraining his flatulence until he's. You no, know, I just let him rip, man. Yeah. yeah, like he's like I'm president of the United States. <laughs> right. I'm gonna let this do what the hell I want. Yeah, look, I teach so. their own. I can't believe this turned into farts. Do you so think? <laughs> do you think Kamala is? Uh, you think she's set up to fail? You know, uh, like yeah, she, I feel like. She's like everything's hard. All the institutions are busted. Whatever well, she gets thrown well, this at. Is, this is the thing that does stagger me about this whole thing, Zach, is that you bring in Kamala, and a, a lot of it should be that she becomes the media darling, mm-hmm. and that's why this piece was so 
significant in my mind is that she's somehow the opposite of the media darling. Yeah. She's like the media punching bag. <laughs> and if, if you have someone who has that relationship with the media right now, when frankly, so you could say, hey, look, it's three years away or two and a half years away. Like all these things can change, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, you know, this should be the honeymoon. That's really my point. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. this should be the point where it's kind of harder to do wrong. Mm. Um, and so when you talk about is she being set up to fail, I mean, she had a tough assignment with the border. Uh, you know, I mean, it is a very important issue to a lot of Americans. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem is that the official administration stance and what Kamala, I think, is being asked to say and do doesn't line up with the uh, inclination of the Democratic base. Yeah. So if, if you're saying, look, this is a shitty assignment it's like well it's a shitty assignment if your job is to curry favor with the democratic base mm-hmm. that by the way is going to play an outsized role in the next primary um well, one of the the interesting things about this really is that at least in my mind there's not going to be a democratic primary joe's going to run again no one challenges him except for actually no one challenges him really and then that's that like that that's what i see as the most likely scenario gosh and now if it's kamala apparently people challenge like that i guess that that was really yeah, the no, point no. of this piece is that like Kamala's not going to clear the field was that that would be my summary of this piece in CNN. Kamala will not clear the field, which is another reason in my mind why it's going to be Joe. Well, if she's going to run as VP, she probably needs a signature win or something. And that's kind of the point I was making. She's kind of set up to fail. Like if they're going to throw the border at her, which it's hard for anybody and Dems don't talk about the border. Well, you go down the list, right? Um, so we'll see. I, I honestly, I felt bad for her, I think. Um, and anyone can write, a staff piece on you. It's um, this was you know well done. Yeah, you, you, you have, you have dozens and dozens of staffers. You get like someone. That, that's one of the issues with today is that like if you want to write a hit piece on someone, you can get someone who worked for that person to trash it's them easy. because it's, it's like easy. you know dozens of people. You know, if you imagine someone had like a hundred staffers, how many of those hundred staffers are not awesome people? <laughs> you know, like yeah. let, let's say they're like ten people with an axe to grind, and then a reporter sticks a mic in their face and it's like, "Hey, what do you want to say?" And then yes. you know, it's like so. So that that's one of the uh, atmospheric elements right now that just makes me uncomfortable. Really, is like I'm reading all these pieces where someone just like getting trashed, and you're just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like. Uh, you know, and and then there are words that get thrown in there too that that make it seem super serious. So serious. That there's part of me that's like, you know what? It's not against the law to be an asshole. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like, uh, and, <laughs> and then in certain contexts, it's just like, you know, this person like acted like an asshole that time, and then you're you're like didn't invite me to X Y Z company out later. Uh, Maybe so, sing karaoke or, or so you know whatever it happens to be. <laughs> I mean, certainly Jeez. I have, no, I, I, I feel I have it, more versions of that. It the eighty twenty rule is what I said. Like we hired. It was like 200 plus people in a month on the presidential campaign. Like of those 200 people, if we hit on 80% of them, I'd call that a, a grand slam. That would be wonderful. It's pretty excellent. Right? Uh, that means you're a very good hirer. And, and that fast too. But So that means like 40 of those you missed, which either means you have to work around them or let them go. And all those situations are awful, uh, especially on a campaign when things are moving. And so, the, you know, of, of those 40 people or some upset, like, yeah, and it's it's tough, um, but that doesn't mean they're great people either. And, you know, there's plenty, you know, but the the 160 or so you got right who aren't talking to press, they're left out of the piece, right? That's uh, that's always been Well, because that. that's a non-story. Yeah. Everyone's like, hey, Kamala's doing great, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, I loved working there. <laughs> yeah and look to me this is like part of being in the arena right you want to get in the arena this is the shit you deal with fine but uh readers should also know like the whole story too, make their own judgment um yes anyway the, the, the summary of the story for me was someone wants to run against kamala oh yeah 
Um, I'm curious. We're going to see. We're going to know who. Here's the other thing. Like, the difference between now and 2024 is going to be a whole different ball game. You know. Again, uh, I think that's why it's Joe. I think yeah. Democrats want to avoid this. Speaking of Dems, some more. Let's talk about Beto. Beto O'Rourke announced he's running for governor of Texas. Our friend, Beto O'Rourke. Um, Let me say up front. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I am friends with Beto. He's yeah. a very good dude. Nice guy. We are about the same age. So we bonded uh, as fellow Gen Xers uh, on the trail. Um, you know, I, I uh, we've helped each other out a little bit. He sent me some uh, salsa after I did something nice for... Did he? Yeah, yeah. Was it good salsa? Yeah, it was delicious. Like, like Texas El Paso, El Paso badass El Paso. salsa. Yeah, that's yeah, good yeah, stuff. Sure. Yeah, nice. Um, Thank so, you, Beto. So I like Beto. I think he's a good man. Yeah. All right, continue. Well, so I'll start with, let's say... I watched his announcement video. It was nicely done in the sense of just him shooting the shit to a camera, which I always like. One take. So props to you, Beto. Basically, the take I got was uh, government doesn't work for people. And like the Texas like uh, electric grid crisis was a wake up call to him, which to be fair is, you know, it's tough to find a good why you're running um, if you've been a politician your whole life, um, which he has essentially besides a brief stint as a rocker for a bit. Uh, uh but I think that's solid. Um, so I have a ton of thoughts, but I, I definitely want yours, unless you want me to dive in. Um, no, I'm happy to, to yeah, give go my, for a better work running for governor. What do you think? Yeah. So the current governor seems um, like Governor Abbott. Yeah, Governor Abbott has problems. Uh, he does have some approval problems. Like some people are eager to move on. Hmm. Um, uh, I think it's going to be a tough atmosphere for Democrats. Um, there is, you know, in some ways it's just easier to run against whoever's in office because people just get ticked off at who's in office. And in this case, it's the, the Republican. Um, but I do think it's going to be a tough climate for Democrats. I can see why Beto is running in part because he is the most prominent Democrat in Texas. The other prominent Democrats did not want to take this particular race on. Uh, and one of the things that Beto is determined to do is just try and help turn Texas blue over time. So win or lose, uh, is Beto going to be a more energizing candidate than just about anyone else that they could muster? Hundred percent, yes. You know, like the, uh, the the extent that there were other Democratic stars, really there aren't that many. But also, it didn't seem like they wanted this one. So uh, I think that Beto's running because he thinks that he can help Democrats statewide. And relatively speaking, that is true. Um, I think it's going to be a tough climate though for Dems um, next year, uh, and it's going to be an uphill battle, in my opinion. Some of the things that Beto said on the presidential trail uh, are not in line with what I, I think uh, a yeah. lot of Texan voters um, want. Uh, and, you know, like that in some ways, you, you know, you got to applaud Beto for taking stands on stuff he believed in. Right. Um, but uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a really tough, tough road for him. So Abbott's approval ratings have dropped pretty significantly. Um, 44% approval rating of his work as governor, 47% disapproval rating. Now, I I don't know. We've talked a lot in this podcast about polls, particularly in the Republican Party. Um, they tend to be really wrong. Um, um, but who knows? Um, it's probably some sort of drop, particularly after the abortion law. So here's my thought. I'm split. And I think we should be split here. On one hand, if you ask for my opinion, like on you, Andrew, like if I was looking at you, like running, like you run twice, you don't win either time. I think it's 
probably better to like f- pause, have a cooling for a off bit. period, yeah, like cool that. off for a bit. Um, and that doesn't mean stay out of public eye. Um, that means that's how you run. Um, so he didn't run for House in 2018 after he left that role when he was running for Senate. Lost Senate, ran for president, lost president. Um, had some moments there, like I was born to be in it, or hell yes, we're gonna take all your guns. Being from Texas, so I don't love this. On one hand, I'm like, oh, this is kind of here we are. Beto's running again, right? On the other hand, I do think it's a good thing for like the Dem bench isn't that deep, and I do think it's good for bigger Democratic names to run for tough seats that matter in the country. It's one of the biggest states. In the yeah, country. I think that's the rationale. You know? I mean, his his uh, his work has been around just turning Texas blue. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of Democratic officials in Texas that would not have won their races if not for better over this last period of time. So it's kind of tough. Imagine if you were him and you were essentially like the person who can generate energy. So Governor Abbott has something like $50 million or or something. Like it's very, very hard for a Texas Democrat to compete with that. And Beto's, I think, maybe the only person who could. Could raise the money, yeah. Yeah, uh, could raise money. He'll get national Dem support big time. Yeah, to to be credible. So it's it's just a lot of responsibilities looking around all the Texas. All the Texas Democrats were begging him to run too because they know some of what I just said. They they know that he's the biggest potential energizer. Um, So I I think that is the dynamic uh, of what's going on. yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm uh, I do like Beto. Uh, I, I think he's uh, again like a good man and you know wants to help people. Yeah, applaud anyone going in the arena. Here's to me the big well, question. Well, well, actually, and, I, and we should build on something you said, and I actually referenced it a little bit earlier. Hmm. What does the Democratic bench look like? Uh, you know, and and you saw it essentially poured out for all to see during the 2020 campaign it's like anyone who really had that level of aspiration was in the field with me yep. and Beto and Corey mm-hmm. and you know Telsey and whomever else it's like like if you thought you had it some people a lot of folks here forget ran like Seth Moulton you probably forget he, he ran mm-hmm. um, Steve Bullock John Hickenlooper yeah um, you, you forget they ran some of them are you know like thriving in AOK like John Hickenlooper is now in the Senate uh, but there's there's something going on in American life, particularly on the Democratic side, where we are not developing or breeding leaders, the next generation. To the extent that there are people that come up, they're almost embodiments of like a certain type of social media argument, uh, and that they command like a niche following, um, but they they don't really have. Uh, like national potential. Mm-hmm. There's something really afoot. It's tough. It's really bad. And But this isn't even just in democratic politics. I'm going to say that America right now is suffering from something of a leadership vacuum. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's in part because the market dynamics are so strong now that we're all subject to them. And if you go against them, which, by the way, in my opinion, is a little bit of what leadership looks like. It's like if the market's going to reward you for doing something, you do it. And everyone kind of on some level senses that that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's fueling you. And so then we look around and there's no one who can actually lay claim to uh, a broad type of moral authority or popularity, the closest thing we can come to it nowadays is celebrity. Um, yeah. You know, and so you had, I talked to someone the other day who said something, you know, you can agree or disagree, but, you know, Barack Obama was a celebrity uh, of a certain kind. You have political celebrities of certain kinds, and this is one, one reason why they're kind of old, like Hillary and uh, Joe and, and Bernie. Uh, 
And this person said at this point, and then Donald Trump's the most obvious example. He's just like a flat out capital C celebrity who became president. Mm -hmm. um, and so his argument was at this point, it's going to be celebrities um, because no one gives a shit about like the random public official from XYZ. And then the media now has be become less powerful and adept at elevating that person to the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. Like Obama got the stratospheric elevation treatment. He yep. gave the um, the uh, speech at the DNC convention. Everyone was like, wow. And then the media was like, wow. And right. then everyone was like, oh, check this guy out. And he's yep. going to do the rest of it. And, and it's been interesting trying to watch them do the same thing uh, every cycle since then. That was 04. They tried it in 08. 12, 16. I don't know about you all, but I don't even remember who gave those speeches in <laughs> 8, 12, 16. Since Obama, yeah. Where, where the party is going to try and uh, anoint Coalesce, and elevate this yeah. person. And then they say, hey, media, take it from here. But it just has not been happening. I'm writing about this right now. Um, I have a book coming in May. But the concept of, I call it, instead of a brand identity, where it's like, we're co brand identity is like, we're Coca-Cola. Here's our colors. Red and white, Santa Claus, polar bears. It's identity branding where people identify with the candidate um, and it's that it, it creates that sort of, well, one, it's identifying with them as a human and a personal level, but then it creates that kind of like diehard fan base and stickiness with the candidate. And the challenge with that is it fosters like niche uh, type issues in candidates, right? So you become whether it's Medicare for all or you are universal basic income. People identify with you, the human, and what you're fighting for. But it ends up creating these kind of brands for the moment in a way where in a cash relief race, you're great, but the race shifts to crime and that's not that's not the right candidate, right? You end up with people who are, when the race is about Medicare for all, they have a certain lane. But if it's about compromising in D.C. around healthcare, it's less so, right? Or if it shifts to something else. Um, and that was actually my point in this. The big question, I think, in this Beto race is probably what the message ends up being what he ends because if he can run on the abortion law which is deeply unpopular even with republicans and he becomes a champion for women in that in texas like you're gonna get a ton of national money in there he probably have a shot if it becomes on if it sticks to like guns or critical race theory or whatever would happen in virginia like i don't know um and this is maybe to your point like why we, it's tougher to build a bench because you end up within like a aoc or eon omar which where they're very popular in certain areas, but it's in that lane and they don't have as much broad national appeal. Um, and you're winning a whole state in Texas. You got to be a little more, I'd like to say like Bud Light marketing over like Sweetwater Ale or some like unique type. You know, you have to be more palatable to the average, I think. I don't know what you're thinking of that, but that's oh, no, I, part so, of it, I think. So if, so if you're like a social scientist or a political taxonomist, uh, you regard America as generally like a centrist or a slightly right of center leaning population. Um, and then the the people that have become really um, popular on the the left uh, have very strong appeal with a subset of Americans, and that's how you become prominent in certain circles, called media or social media. But then it's going to be tough to translate that um, more broadly. That said, now there are you know frankly legions of people that would still want for that success within that niche mm. you know what i mean uh so but it, but it is one of those things where it's going to make it harder not easier to breed someone who actually has uh, a high level of crossover appeal mm. we would joke about this on the campaign too there's a difference between and I, I, this gets overused at times but there's a difference between irl and url you know where it's url on, on the website uh 
you get a lot of tweets and a lot of likes and even donations and like lots of millions of views on your podcast or YouTube show. But then in real life, like that doesn't actually translate to the people who actually vote in a Democratic primary or a Republican primary. Um, so the, the media is a big part of this, too. If yeah. you come out in a certain way, then they'll be like, OK, you're the moderate in this race. You're the moderate. Yeah, they'll find and your then, lane for you. Know, you. Yeah, oh. and they just try and find that ideological lane. And then um, and then they'll be like, do you think your moderate message fits with these <laughs> Like, uh, you know, liberals on the left that represent like the energy and the future of the part. Like that's the way they'll frame things. And so they'll try and like slice and dice and segment yeah. to a point where, again, it's very difficult for someone to develop um, a broader appeal that's going to cross over even within, let's say, the Democratic Party, much less uh, to, to other voters. God bless Beto for one doing this, I guess. And but mainly he's got to run for a year. That's, that's going yeah, to suck. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's got to put some more miles on on the the truck. That's um, a lot because because he he he's a driver. He like drives all over Texas when he does this thing. He's he works hard. One thing I'll, I'll say too about Beto is the man runs. He grinds. Yeah, like, like but he you know he's like a runner. But he runs like someone who runs. Let's put it that way. Yeah, he's running like half marathon stuff, right? Yeah, he does like in he he his campaigns are you know like marathons, like endurance feats. Yeah. You know, it, it it's fun talking about folks that we literally ran with and against, uh, people that we've gotten to know. It does give you a different perspective. Uh, if you want to get to know people who run for president, run for president, because it turns <laughs> out that you end up being around them. Um, but the the way that these folks are in real life and the, the way that you interact with them in the media, sometimes, I got to say, they are somewhat different. I, I, you know, I'm not sure if I resemble that, too. Um, but it's it's fascinating to see what people who are on the trail with us end up doing as their next act, mm. you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I can relate to aspects of it. I mean, like I'm doing what I think I uh, can do to have the most positive impact possible. And I think that's something that different people actually experience after they come off running for president. When we do meetings or I guess we're doing a whole bunch of different projects. When I have meetings with people who never met you before but knew of you or were fans of yours – the number one thing I always hear, Andrew, is that, wow, he's just like I, he is when he's on TV. It's the exact same guy. And I my response every time is like, yep, exactly. Um, for better or for worse, it's him. <laughs> Andrew Yang, shitty politician. Hey, man. Because, you know, because I'm the same dude. It's true. I mean, you know. Uh, I mean, yeah. You're a good politician. <laughs> this is like, your, this your is biggest what flaw as a politician, man. It's like, you'd be like bad. You're like bad because, you know, you're, you're a lousy liar. To your credit, you've never claimed to be a good politician. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. We claim to be good marketers. And I think we are, generally speaking. Uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, shit. Like, you don't have to say objectively I've been a very good politician because, you know, I made a dent in a presidential yeah, race I and, know. like, outcompeted, like, <laughs> half a dozen, you know, like, brand names. Thank you, Yang Gang. Thank you, Forward Community, uh, for being here for us. But, we're you know, we're just going to continue to make history. Um, you know, things are going to... Um, take different forms. Something Evelyn said to me that she appreciated. She said, you know, like, I'm so glad that you're continuing to evolve and grow and develop. And it's not like the the same stuff um, in part because, you know, I'm a human being and like I see things and see the problems, have a different sense of what we can do to help at, a, at any given time. And in part because we get bored when you do new shit, you know. Well, we have a lot of new <laughs> shit coming down the pipe. We do. We got new so, stuff coming. So if, if, if you're into what's going on those last... Uh, a couple of months like you haven't seen anything yet you ain't seen nothing yet that's our show love you guys see you on monday